Today on this episode of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. But it begins to make us understand with the word heterogeneous that, that there are many, many phenotypes of COPD. Steve Renard used to say that, that COPD is actually an orphan disease because there's so many tiny little types of disease that come under the umbrella of COPD. Today, pulmonologist Drs. Robbie Callen and Jill O'Hara join the podcast to discuss gold guidelines updates for COPD in 2023 in this first part of a two-part PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. Bowringer Engelheim has 100 years of heritage in respiratory disease. Since 1921, they have emerged as a leader in this disease area, having launched several treatments in a range of respiratory conditions including asthma, COPD, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, and lung cancer. Their focus is on improving the quality of life of patients suffering from debilitating respiratory diseases and enabling them to maintain a more independent life. Learn more at BoehringerEngelheim.com. The content is solely the responsibility of the authors and does not represent the views of Boehringer Engelheim or its affiliates. Hello, I'm Ravi Calhan. I'm a professor of medicine and preventive medicine at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. And I'm Jill O'Har. I'm a professor in the Department of Internal Medicine, Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Welcome, Jill. Hey, Ravi, I'm really glad to be here. Jill, it's, uh, it's the time of year for COPD doctors to talk about this sort of thing, but recently GOLD, the Global Initiative for Obstructive Lung Disease, released its 2023 update, and it's got some updates for sure. I thought maybe we could talk about some of the key changes and discuss which ones you thought were expected, some that were not, and how they actually should impact how we think about and care for our COPD patients. Sound good? Sounds great. And actually, Ravi, I was hoping this time of year you were going to ask me what was on my Christmas list. We'll get to that at the end. <laughs> As you remember, I live with two small children, so my Christmas list capacity is always tapped. <laughs> um, so, Jill, there are a lot of changes in the gold document, but I think some of the key ones are there's a, there's a new set of definitions related to COPD. There's a new approach to how we're recommended to think about categorizing uh, severity and thinking about therapies. And then there's an there's a emphasis on what actually impacts COPD mortality. So maybe we should start with the definitions and how an emphasis now in gold on clinical COPD versus early slash pre-COPD should impact our thinking. And I, I'd really like to hear your thoughts about that. Well, great. I, I'm gonna actually gonna read the new definition to make sure that I, I get it right, and then talk a little bit about how I feel about it. Uh, and that is, is that chronic obstructive disease is a heterogeneous lung condition characterized by chronic respiratory symptoms such as dyspnea, cough, sputum production exacerbations due to abnormalities in the airway, such as bronchitis and bronchiolitis and or alveoli, such as emphysema, that cause persistent, often progressive 
airflow obstruction. Now that's clearly a mouthful, but I think what it keeps is the concept of the symptoms. That is to say, this is a disorder characterized by symptoms that we've always thought of with COPD, dyspnea, cough, sputum production, and exacerbations. It also, it keeps the concept of airflow obstruction, but it begins to make us understand with the word heterogeneous that, that there are many, many phenotypes of COPD. Steve Renard used to say that, that COPD is actually an orphan disease because there's so many tiny little types of disease that come under the umbrella of COPD. We've talked a little bit about airway abnormalities, uh, alveolar abnormalities. Uh, and so I, I think it's important to start to understand that not all patients present the, the same way with the new definition. Then there are additional definitions that come in to play that I think begin to introduce how we're going to think about COPD from here to four, the concept of early COPD. And that means it's the beginning of the process. It's going to develop down line. And this is meant to be more of a biologic term rather than, than something that we're going to see as clinicians. Now, mild COPD, that speaks to the fact that we grade COPD by severity based on the percent predicted FEV1. And that really hasn't changed. It's just to emphasize, if you say mild, it means you have to have an, a percent predicted FEV1 to sit in that category. Next, young COPD, and this is really fascinating, newer, not necessarily brand new this, this year, but newer concept, which adds to the concept of the Fletcher and Pitot curve. We remember that we think about lung growth up until about the age of 30, and then normal healthy people losing a little bit of lung function every year, and people who develop COPD, who smoke and develop COPD, having a much more rapid, exaggerated loss of lung function, up to five times the normal age-related loss of lung function. Now, what this adds to this concept is young. That means COPD doesn't generally begin to become at all in process till about the age of 40, and most patients who are diagnosed are in their 60s. Now, what is young COPD? These are people who never reached their anticipated expected lung growth by the time they hit 30. And, and this may be due to a, a, a whole series of, of things that we haven't really emphasized in the past. I know in my region, a lot of people were raised in homes that had wood stoves. So exposures to biomass fuel in childhood recurrent respiratory tract infections, including tuberculosis as a, as, a, as a cause of COPD, malnutrition, smoking moms, low birth weight. So all of these things can actually lead to failure to attain that normal anticipated lung growth. So even if your trajectory is the same anticipated loss of lung function due to aging, you'll fall into the COPD category. Now this concept, two more definitions, pre-COPD and PRISM. Pre-COPD implies that patients um, 
still have a normal ratio. They don't have obstruction yet. So the FEV1 slash FVC is still normal, but they may have structural abnormalities visible on CT, or they may have other types of pulmonary function abnormalities with a preserved ratio. Falling kind of under this umbrella is PRISM. These are people who have a preserved ratio, P, R, I, S, and they throw the M into it, preserved ratio, but an impaired spirometry. That means they may have abnormalities in FEV1 and FVC that preserves the ratio, but maybe there's a commensurate decline in both to cause a drop, um, a drop that preserves the ratio. So these are important, um, these are important definitions that I think will begin to help us understand how to frame or phenotype the patients we see in front of us. Yeah, I agree, Jill. And, and one of the things that it magnifies that, you know, probably both you and I as COPD doctors have a little bit of a chip on our shoulder that no one ever gave it any credit, but it's complicated. None of this is straightforward. There are different phenotypes. There are different expressions of disease. And I, at least, you know, when the gold statement updates to reflect that, as confusing as it is to sort of rethink a little bit where we are with COPD and it's not just, you need to define the disease by airflow limitation currently, but there's a whole lot of complexity behind that simple definition. It really, I actually take heart that we'll probably with these definitions, be able to move the field forward and think about the range of people rather than just sort of the narrow fundamentals of your spirometry is abnormal, you have COPD. Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, as these definitions seep into the community, it will better prepare physicians to understand the research that's being done now and, and where the field is going. It's a true statement that an early COPD or pre-COPD really magnifies this. There's no chronic condition that doesn't have a better outcome when you treat it earlier. It's just a fundamental of healthcare. Now, we don't know what the right therapies are for people with pre-COPD, but at least now we have a definition of things to work from. Absolutely. So transitioning, Jill, to sort of the the tried and true airflow obstruction group, people who meet the clinical definition of COPD, they have an FEV1 over FVC below 0.7 and a risk factor for that abnormality. What does Gold now tell us about how to approach thinking about diagnosis and treatment of those people based on their, their disease expression? So nothing's changed about diagnosis. You still need spirometry, as you've mentioned. They still need to be stratified into mild, moderate, severe, and very severe based on the FEV1% predicted. Patients don't get treatment based on their severity from FEV1. That's mostly a, a mortality and morbidity predictor. It's required to predict where that patient, you know, where the pitfalls are gonna be for that patient. But we treat patients based on their symptoms. So you can use validated questionnaires such as the COPD assessment test, the MRC, the Medical Research Council's dyspnea index. Uh, you can use any validated questionnaire that you're used to. 
Using these questionnaires, the old guidelines actually separated patients into four different quadrants, A, B, C, and D. And so we used severity of symptoms to separate A and C from B and D. We set, we used exacerbation frequency to separate A and B from C and D. So the C and Ds were people who had frequent exacerbations. So it's a kind of a natural evolution to preserve the A and B group. That's not very symptomatic and not having a lot of exacerbations. B, symptomatic, more symptomatic, but not having a lot of exacerbations. And then lumping the C and D into people who have a lot of exacerbations. Now, why does that make sense? Well, quite frankly, can you imagine when we talk about a lot of exacerbations, that means two or more moderate exacerbations in the previous year or one severe exacerbation in the last year, one or more severe exacerbations in, in the last year. Now think about this a minute. So, so if what is a severe exacerbation? That's one that took you to the emergency room or the hospital. Can you imagine that you've been to the hospital or the emergency room with an exacerbation and you're not very symptomatic? That's just hard to believe. So I think it made perfect sense to lump C and D into, into just one category, which is people who have a lot of exacerbations. Now, when you start therapy, um, what you'll know about the therapy chart, there's an, uh, as in the past, there's an initial therapy, and then there's a chart that goes to revising your therapy based on patient's response to the initial therapy. In both, both of these two charts, you'll see that inhaled glucocorticoid and uh, beta adrenergic combinations are gone. They, they're in neither of these two, uh, two treatment algorithms. Um, and what we have now is either a single bronchodilator, a dual bronchodilator, or a triple as, as potential drugs to be using. Um, and, and so that's the initial therapy. If you're in A, just A bronchodilator. If you're in B, that means the people who don't have a lot of exacerbations um, but are pretty symptomatic, you could start with a single bronchodilator and then move them up to a dual, where many people would just start with a dual bronchodilator. What do you do, Jill? I always do a dual bronchodilator in those people. I don't waste time. I, I think you're right. I mean, you know, when you think about two copays and, you know, determining if the insurance is going to cover it and this and that and... and you're absolutely right. I, I immediately, in B, I go to a dual bronchodilator immediately. Um, and then when you go to E, it's a dual bronchodilator, and if they continue to have exacerbations, triple. Uh, and again, my personal uh, approach, and I'd, like, I'd be very interested in yours, but, but my personal approach is if you came to the hospital or the ED with an exacerbation, you get a triple. There's just no question. Yeah, me too. I agree. I think the gold statement now introduces complexity around that question saying inhaled steroids should be predicated, the use of inhaled steroids should be predicated on some level of peripheral eosinophil count. 
I, I'm going to ask you about that in a second. But for me, if you were in the hospital, I'm not sure I actually care what your peripheral eosinophil count is. I give triple inhaled therapy. And, and you know what? Most of the time, if you hit the ED or the hospital with an exacerbation, your peripheral eosinophil count's probably going to be up anyway. I mean, I, I take a care of a lot of hospitalized COPD exacerbations, and, and I look at those eosinophil counts, and most of the time they're up. Um, so I agree. So what, what are we talking about numbers-wise? The studies would, would show that people who have a peripheral eosinophil account less than 100 generally don't benefit by inhaled glucocorticoids, and they actually are at greater risk of getting a pneumonia from that inhaled glucocorticoid. Um, then, so when you're looking at, at risk-benefit ratio, um, the pneumonia out, outweighs the potential for benefit. Now, certainly people with higher eosinophil counts can get a pneumonia from the inhaled glucocorticoid as well. That's a well-known complication. But when you look again at risk-benefit ratio, far and away, if you're greater than 300, your chances are you're gonna have a better benefit than the risk from the pneumonia. The people that are really questionable are the one to 300s. And realizing that these, these bounce around some, they don't bounce around a lot. They seem to bounce around a lot more though around an exacerbation. That is to say, they tend to be higher in the setting of an exacerbation. And also this concept um, that, that use of an inhaled glucocorticoid might in some way facilitate underlying um, H. influenza colonization. Uh, and may be in some way related to this pneumonia signal that you can see in about three to 6% of all people who take inhaled glucocorticoids. But all that aside, all those caveats aside, the gold says less than 100, don't use inhaled glucocorticoids. Greater than 300, yes, use inhaled glucocorticoids. In between depends on how many exacerbations they are and how motivated you are. If you're not gonna use an inhaled glucocorticoid and they're having multiple exacerbations, then what are you gonna do? Well, you're gonna think about a phosphodiesterase inhibitor, or you're gonna think um, about azithromycin three times weekly, both of which have been shown to reduce exacerbation frequency. Um, then you have to go to the caveat that well, in what group of patients are the phosphodiesterase inhibitors useful for? And they've only been tested in patients who have severe disease and sputum production and frequent exacerbations. So that's where you're going to use that group of drugs. And that's the first part of this two-part specialist spotlight. Please be sure to join us for part two. For more stories like these, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions? Please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing Medical News Roundup and just ask, what's my Flash Briefing? Thanks today to our guests, Dr. Robbie Callen and Jill O'Hara, and to Sean Mullen and Kate Rio for production assistance. Join me next time for an episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine.